Can you turn it up, Dave? I can't hear the music in my headphones. That's better, my friend. Here we go from the top. What thought rocks got the world and other things? It doesn't have to rhyme, it's my song I will sing. So put on your listening cap and start listening. It doesn't make a lot of syncopation. Look at it up in your dictionary. I don't know, Dave. I don't think that's a take. We better start over. Well, I let my wife listen to the intro to this program, and she pointed out to me immediately. She said, you're flat. And I said, well, it's not meant to be serious. It's meant to be tongue-in-cheek. Uh, sort of like all these other people that get paid big bucks, but they sing flat. Like if you've ever seen Willie Nelson, uh, he's all over the map as far as tone goes, uh, but makes a lot of money doing it. So it was kind of meant to be tongue in cheek, but I hope you uh, take it for what it's worth. Meant to be just a little bit of fun on the highway of life here as we jump on board, quad dot rocks, God, the world and other things. And our mission, absolutely. I'm telling you more than ever, Our mission is advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. And for those of you who are just tuning in, maybe for the first time, I want to remind you that I give a full explanation to what I mean back at the very beginning of this podcast series, back in episode one. It's very important that you understand what that means. I'll say in a nutshell, when I talk about that, I'm talking about the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. It gives us the stability we need to live in these trying days. And I say a lot about that in that episode. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you've never heard that that first episode. But anyway, this is season 13, episode number 384. And I tell you, season 13 uh, seems to be moving a little bit slower because uh, season 14 starts with episode two or 389 or 289, I should say. What did I say? How did I get to 300? No, it's supposed to be 284. I'm sorry. Hey, I'm looking at my screen and that didn't look right. So anyway, episode 284. (laughs) And the title of this is Hold On To Your Heart. Of course, this is going to be released the day before Valentine's Day, 2023. This comes out on Monday, February 13th, the day before Valentine's Day. But I think this is really fitting because as soon as I read this book, I'm in the process of reading this book by John Flavel, who is a Puritan pastor and author from the late 1600s, or the second half of the 1600s, that it immediately grabbed my heart. And it's from his book, A Treatise on Keeping the Heart. And this particular version that I'm quoting from is from 1840, published New York and the American Tract Society. So The things I'm quoting from are in the public domain, and it's uh, free to use without copyright violation. But I do want you to know that because I tell you, I am just enthralled right now with the writings of the Puritans. And in all of my theological studies, we never studied them. I don't don't really understand why. But to me, they're they're really at a place of deep insight into the Word of God that's ministering to me uh, where I am in my walk with Christ right now. I also want to remind you there's going to be a lot of links in the show notes uh, for today's episode. Be sure and check out the show notes. 
for all of these important links that'll help you in your walk with God. But to keep the heart is to carefully preserve it from sin, which disorders it, and maintain that spiritual frame which makes it fit for a life of communion with God. Flavel, the Puritan pastor and author who lived in the second half of the 1600s, in his book, A Treatise on Keeping the Heart, builds a strong case that this is the Christian's duty. It's not an option. He highlights several reasons or events in a person's life that calls for an exertion of more than ordinary diligence to keep the heart. My friend, you and I are living in such a season as this. One of the extraordinary times in which we should proceed with even greater caution and thought in protecting our human CPU, our soul, the Bible calls it our heart, is the time of Zion's trouble. Zion is an old English reference to the universal church of Jesus Christ. We aren't talking about buildings or people who with their mouths say that they're Christians but deny Christ by their public, sinful, all-in, no-holds-barred, day-to-day lifestyle. We aren't talking about people who say they know Jesus, but in fact their hearts are far from Him. We are talking about human beings who have had a life-changing, soul-saving salvation experience with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the body of Christ, the church. It's important that we understand who I'm talking about when I make this statement. This is a great time of Zion's trouble. If I was a referee keeping scorecard, measuring a group or earthly entity's abilities to impact and advance their agenda in the cultural realm, I would give all of the aggressive influencers a 100 and the church a zero. In response to the avalanche of cataclysmic social customs and mores, reversals and inversions, the church of Jesus Christ is totally, totally absent from the table. Friend, if you'll look at the world's situation with an honest heart, you would have to agree with me. But you can mark this down right now. The church may be down. It may be in a time of chastening from God Almighty for its infatuation with money, world power, sensuality, and open public debauchery. But in the end, the church of Jesus Christ is going to rise up in power and success, as Flavel points out. We have God's promise and guarantee on it. When the church, like the ship in which Christ and his disciples were, is oppressed and ready to perish in the waves of persecution, then good souls are ready to be shipwrecked too upon the waves of their own fears. It's true, most people need the spur rather than the reins in this case. Yet some people sit down discouraged under a sense of the church's troubles. The loss of the ark cost Eli his life. The sad posture in which Jerusalem lay made good Nehemiah's countenance change in the midst of all the pleasures and accommodations of the court. But though God allows, yes, commands the most awakened apprehensions of these calamities, and in such a day calls to mourning, weeping, and girding with sackcloth, and severely threatens the insensible, yet it will not please him to see you and I sit like pensive Elijah under the juniper tree when he said, Ah, Lord, it is enough. Take away my life also. No, a mourner in Zion, and the church you may and ought to be, but a self-tormentor you must not be. Complain to God you may, but complain of God, though even if but by the language of your actions you must not. In the midst of this time of trouble in the church, those of us with sensitive hearts, even overwhelmed with the burdensome sense of the church's troubles, can be relieved and supported. Friend, there is no doubt that for those of us who prefer the kingdom of God above any other worldly joy, 
it's hard to keep our hearts from sinking below in response to this sense of its troubles. Yet we can keep our hearts as we ought to, and it is possible by the use of such heart-establishing directions as these. Number one, settle this great truth in your heart that no trouble happens to the church but by the permission of the church's God, and he permits nothing out of which he will not ultimately bring much good to his people. We may derive comfort from reflections on the permitting will as well as on the commanding will of God. My friend, we see it in reality. We see these two aspects of God's will in life. We see the permitting will, things that he allows to happen, as well as the commanding will, those things that he commands to come to pass. They're not in conflict. Together, they form the will of God. King David manifested this kind of great confidence in the will of God. In 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 14, it says, When King David got to Bahurim, a man belonging to the family of the house of Saul was just coming out. His name was Shema'i, son of Gera, and he was yelling curses as he approached. He threw stones at David and at all the royal servants, the people and the warriors on David's right and left. Shema'i said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man! The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you became king. And the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. Look, you are in trouble because you're a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and remove his head. The king replied, Sons of Zariah, do we agree on anything? He curses me this way because the Lord told him, Curse David. Therefore, who can say, Why did you do that? Then David said to Abishai and all his servants, Look, my own son, my own flesh and blood intends to take my life. How much more now this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse me. The Lord has told him to. Perhaps the Lord will see my affliction and restore goodness to me instead of Shemai's curses today. So David and his men proceeded along the road as Shemai was going along the ridge of the hill opposite him. As Shemai went, he cursed David, threw stones at him, and kicked up dust. Finally, the king and all the people with him arrived exhausted, so they rested there. Shemai blamed David for King Saul's death during a battle with the Philistines, but the truth is, we read in 1 Chronicles 10 verses 1-4, that Saul had fallen on his own sword to escape capture by the enemy. However, Shemai accused David of murder and announced that this was the reason Absalom was taking over the kingdom. In the end, King David prevailed and on his deathbed, he charges Solomon with the task of executing Shimei. In the New Testament, we see the example of Christ as he stood face to face with Pilate, who had the power of death in his hands, and said, You could have no power against me, except it were given you from above. It should as much calm our hearts that it is the will of God to allow it, and that, had he not allowed it, it could never have been as it is. This very consideration quieted Job, Eli, David, and Hezekiah that the Lord did it, was enough to them. And why should it not be so to us? If the Lord will have the church plowed as a field and her fair stones lie in the dust, if it be his pleasure that Antichrist shall rage yet longer and wear out the saints of the Most High, if it be his will that a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord Almighty shall be upon the valley of vision, that the wicked shall devour the man that is more righteous than he, what are we that we should contend with God? 
It is fitting that we should be resigned to that will from where we proceeded, and that he who made us should dispose of us as he pleases. He may do what seems good to him. Without our consent, does poor man stand upon equal ground that he may contend with his Creator, or that God should give him an account of any of his matters? That we be content, however God may dispose of us, is as reasonable as that we be obedient, whatever he may require of us. But if we pursue this argument farther and consider that God's permissions all meet at last in the real good of his people, this will more quiet our spirits. When God allows the enemies to carry away the best among the people into captivity, which happened, this looks like a distressing providence, only to find out later that God sends them there for their good. Why did God take the Assyrian as a rod in his hand to beat his people with? The end of his doing this is that he may accomplish his work among Mount Zion. If God can bring much good out of the greatest evil of sin, much more out of temporal afflictions, and that he will, is as evident as that he can do so. For it is inconsistent with the wisdom of common man to permit anything. Now we're talking about how we as humans approach things. That it's inconsistent with the wisdom of common man to permit anything, which he might prevent if he pleased, to cross his great design. For example, when they were building the ballpark in Arlington, the person who designed that beautiful facility as it was built, he didn't let anything come across his great design. The design came to fruition just as he planned it. So can it be imagined that the wisest God should do so? Of course. As Martin Luther said, let infinite wisdom, power, and love alone. Leave it alone. In other words, folks, that what we've got to do is come to a point to where we trust in God's wisdom, power, and love. Leave it alone. For by these all creatures are swayed and all actions guided in reference to the church. It is not our work to rule the world, but to submit to him who does rule the world. It is enough that the affairs of the church are in a good, wise, and powerful hand. Another thought, ponder this heart-supporting truth. Regardless of however many troubles are upon the church, King Jesus resides in his body, which is the body of Christ, the church. What? Has the Lord forsaken his churches? Has he sold them into the enemy's hands? Does he not see what evil happens to them, that our hearts sink as a result? Is it not shamefully undervaluing the great God and too much magnifying poor impotent man to fear and tremble at creatures while God is in the midst of us? The church's enemies are many and mighty. Let this be granted. Yet that argument with which Caleb and Joshua strove to raise their own hearts is as of much force now as it was then. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Those of us with discouraged souls, isn't God infinitely more superior in power and strength than all his enemies? Is not one almighty more than many mighties? The scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's a rhetorical question which begs the answer, no one. Gideon demonstrated he knew where his power for success over his enemies came from when he wrote the motto upon his banner, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So friend, if we can be well assured the Lord is with his people, we will thereby rise above all our discouragements. We don't have to wait for a sign from heaven like Gideon to know this is so. We already have a sign before us. God's marvelous preservation among all of our enemies that we now live among. If God is not with his people, how is it that we are not already swallowed up quickly? Do our enemies lack wickedness, power, or opportunity? Of course not. But there is an invisible hand upon them. Let then his presence give us rest.
And though the mountains be hurled into the sea, though heaven and earth mingle together, fear not, God is in the midst of the church. She shall not be moved. That's one of the key takeaways today is that we need to look at the landscape of all of the things that are happening in our midst, and it cannot get any more outlandish. And I won't even go into details. You know all of the things that I'm talking about. But against that backdrop, we've got to declare that God is in the midst of the church and she shall not be moved. Consider the great advantages that serve the people of God in an afflicted condition. If a low and afflicted state in the world is really best for the church, then our gloominess is not only irrational, but ungrateful. Indeed, if we estimate the happiness of the church by its worldly ease, splendor, and prosperity, then such times of affliction will appear to be unfavorable. But if we reckon its glory to consist in its humility, faith, and heavenly-mindedness, no condition so much abounds with advantages for these as an afflicted condition. It was not persecutions and prisons, but worldliness and prosperity which poisoned the church. Put the tape on pause, folks. It was not persecution and prisons, but worldliness and prosperity which poisoned the church. John Flower wrote that 400, almost 400 years ago. Think about it. He was saying, making that statement then. Think about all that has transpired since he went to be with Christ. And he wrote back then, it was not persecutions and prisons, but worldliness and prosperity which poisoned the church. Neither was it the earthly glory of its professors, but the blood of its martyrs, which was the seed of the church. The power of godliness did never thrive better than in affliction and was never less thriving than in times of greatest prosperity. When we are left as a poor and afflicted people, then we learn to trust in the name of the Lord. My friend, I didn't establish that truth. I didn't set that into motion. The creator God of the universe is the one who has made things this way. But soon we come to the reality that this is so, then our hearts and minds change about everything that's going on in the world. It is indeed for those of us who are the saints of God's advantage to be weaned from the love of and delight in ensnaring earthly narcissisms in order to be quickened and urged forward with more speed to heaven, to have clearer discoveries of our own hearts, to be taught to pray more fervently, frequently, and spiritually, to look and long for the heavenly rest more passionately. If these are for our advantage, Experience teaches us that no condition is ordinarily blessed with such fruits as these, like an afflicted condition. Is it good then to express discontent and wilt, because our Father gives attention to the advantage of our souls rather than the gratification of our fleshly desires? Is it good then to express discontent and wilt because He will bring us to heaven by a nearer way than we are willing to go? My friend, what Flavel is talking about here is the fact that God, God's way to heaven is the shortest distance between two points. It's a straight line. You and I, in our, in our discontent and our waywardness and our wilting, are the ones who want to make the line curved and take a longer time to get there. Is this resistance, sometimes even aversion to his actions, an appropriate response to his love, who is pleased so much to concern himself in our welfare, who does more for us than he would do for thousands in the world? My friend, these thoughts are so profound. Listen to what Flavel said. That is this resistance, sometimes even aversion, that's my word, to his actions, an appropriate response to his love, 
who is pleased so much to concern himself in our welfare, who does more for us than he will do for thousands in the world. My friend, that is the truth, that if you have come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, God does more for you than he will do for thousands in the world, upon whom he will not lay a rod or dispense an affliction to them for their good. You see, my friends, sometimes when people are advancing in their wickedness and they're advancing in their wealth and they're advancing in their power and their prestige and their ability to, quote unquote, get the job done, that is not necessarily a good thing. And so, therefore, upon whom he will not lay a rod or dispense an affliction to them for their good, you see, sometimes a rod or an affliction is for your good. But if God is withholding the rod or an affliction that could actually bring about good in someone's wicked life, that's judgment. And so we've got to stop and rethink this whole thing and understand that sometimes the things that are withheld from us are for our good. And the afflictions that we experience are for our betterment, for our chastisement, for our glorification, for our sanctification, and then glorification. I think about a country star my, one of my sons told me about it just here recently. Very gifted in every way, and I won't go into a lot of details, but overtaken in alcoholism, and it's caused the stopping of the tour. My friend, do you realize that people that reach that status of success, that they have an entire industry of people counting on them for their paycheck? And as Tom Cruise said back when he was filming Top Gun during all the garbage going on with the pandemic and people were not following the rules, I don't think he was trying to be a jerk. The fact of the matter was that there were people breathing down his neck watching if they were complying. And if not, they were ready to pull the plug on the production. And Cruise was captured by somebody's iPhone as saying, hey, do you understand if you continue, and I'm paraphrasing, but if you continue, you're going to cost someone the ability to pay for their child's college. You're going to cost someone their ability to make their house payment. And so these people that reach these great levels of success, they are deeply blessed with God. But yet in the midst of the blessing, we still see that their lives fall apart. And so is the wealth of success a good thing? If it causes you to have such a, a, a propensity towards uh, debauchery or alcoholism that you go into deep alcoholism, then what a sad life. All the potential in the world, the voice of an angel, the, 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 the riches of a king, the, the access and freedom beyond compare, and yet trapped in the sad, sad place of alcoholism. And I tell you, I'm not pounding a drum, but as a kid growing up in an alcoholic home, I know what it's like. I've been in the bars. I've been around it. And I'm telling you, it is a terrible thing. And so, my friend, sometimes when God withholds his rod and withholds the dispensing of an affliction, that's not good. That can be bad. But sadly, we judge by sense and reckon things good or evil according to our present taste. In the midst of these troubled times for the church, we need to pay close attention to many precious mercies which the people of God enjoy amid all their trouble. It's a pity that our tears on account of our troubles should so blind our eyes that we should not see our mercies. There are many outward comforts which we presently enjoy that are above what were enjoyed by Christ and his precious servants of whom the Bible says the world was not worthy. What do you think of the pardon of sin, a saving interest in Christ, the covenant of promise, and an eternity of happiness in the presence of God after these few suffering days are over? What an indictment of our faith and the condition of our hearts if we, who are people entitled to such mercies as these, if we should sag and lag 
and collapse under any temporal affliction. And my friend, when we get to heaven, we're going to look back and see that a lot of the things we held in such high esteem and concern here on this earth were just the loss of trivialities. Friend, what does it matter if we don't gain the favor of great and powerful people, if we have the favor of the great God, or if we perhaps diminished in temporal mercies, but we are thereby increased in spiritual and eternal mercies? Perhaps we've suffered because of the cross of Christ and we cannot live so plentiful as before. My friend, there are people that made decisions during the pandemic that cost them their jobs, their livelihoods, their homes, their savings. But my friend, because of the power of the church in Jesus Christ, in spite of the temporal loss we may have, we can also live as heavenly as ever because we have entered into the kingdom of heaven. We really need to do a personal inventory of the heart and ask ourselves, Will we grieve so much for these circumstances as to forget our substantial eternal mercies? Shall light troubles make us forget weighty mercies? Remember, the true riches of the church are laid out of the reach of all enemies. They can't get to the real riches of the church. In light of these realities, we have to come to the cold, hard facts in the immediate. So what if God does not in his outward dispensations distinguish between his own and others? What if his judgments single out the best and spare the worst? What if an Abel is killed and a Cain survives? What if a bloody Dionysius dies peacefully in his bed and a good Josiah falls in battle? What if the belly of the wicked is filled with worldly delicacies and the teeth of the saints are filled with gravel stones? Even still, against all those troublesome things, there is much substance of praise because electing love has distinguished though common providence has not. Now, my friend, that is a deep thought. That here's what we can praise, is that electing love has distinguished. God is making the distinction. He's drawing the lines, though common providence has not. And while prosperity and impunity slay the wicked, even slaying and adversity shall benefit and save the righteous. Mark this down and hold it fast in your heart. However low the church is plunged under the waters of adversity, she shall surely rise again. We need to cast out all of our fear, for as surely as Christ arose the third day, in spite of the seal and guard over him, so surely the church shall arise out of all of her troubles and lift up her victorious head over all her enemies. There is no reason to fear the ruin of that people who thrive by their losses and multiply by being diminished. What a description of the world in which we live. And Flavel says to this world, there is no reason to fear the ruin of that people who thrive by their losses and multiply by being diminished. Be not too hasty to bury the church before she's dead. Stay until Christ has tried his skill before you give her up for lost. The bush may be all in a flame, but shall never be consumed. And that is because of the goodwill of him who dwells in it. Remember the instances of God's care and tenderness over his people in former difficulties. Think about this. At the time of Flavel's writing, over 1,800 years the church has been in affliction, and yet it is not consumed. Many a wave of persecution has gone over it, yet it is not drowned. Many devices have been formed against it. Thus far, none of them has prospered. And folks, now here we are hundreds of years later. This is all still true. This is not the first time that wicked rulers have plotted its ruin or stretched out their hand to aggravate it, still it has been preserved from, supported under, and delivered out of all its troubles. Is the church not as dear to God as ever? Is he not as able to save it now as in former times? 
Though we don't know where the deliverance will arise, yet the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Today, as we embrace these deep truths into our hearts and own them for ourselves, we can find consolation, strength, and tenacity to keep our hearts in the midst of this time of the church's great trouble. And we know that Jesus Christ is much more sensible of and caring about it than we can be, and he will have an eye of favor upon those who mourn for it. And with that, my friend, I bid you peace.